Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. This episode is all about Apollo 11. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Six. It's 50 years since humanity first stepped onto the moon's surface. It's a story that's been told countless times since, and it's a story that's being told countless more times as we approach the 50th anniversary. But it's a story to me which is endlessly interesting. And it certainly isn't just one story. We're now hearing so much more about the hidden figures, about the 400,000 people that NASA estimates it took to take humanity to the moon. We're going to hear from people who are still studying the rocks that were brought back from the moon's surface by those Apollo missions. We're going to hear from one of the people who walked on the moon, Alan Bean, the Apollo astronaut, and much more beside that. But as we approach the 50th anniversary, there are new books coming out, there are new podcasts coming out, there are new films coming out, there are new TV series coming out. And to be honest, I'm lapping them all up. There are a couple of things which have really captured my imagination, though. The first of those is the BBC's podcast, 13 Minutes to the Moon, presented by Kevin Fong. Kevin Fong worked for NASA as a visiting researcher with the Human Adaptation and Countermeasures Office at Johnson Space Centre, and of course presented the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures in 2015. But the podcast, 13 Minutes to the Moon, is all about the last 13 minutes before Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon's surface. I mean, it's, it's been a labour of love, and there have been real real blood, sweat, toil and tears on, on that one, but uh, partly because it's so expansive. You know, we started out with this idea that we'd make something that was two or three episodes long and we realised to tell the full story of the final 13 minutes of landing on the moon, um, you know, you needed to sort of spend 12 episodes, which is what we ended up doing. Yeah. Um, but it's been a great joy because, you know, it was a proper road trip and we were hammering around the United States, you know, in search of... It was kind of like you were in search of all these people who, after... You know, everyone who worked on the programme felt like they went to the moon and, and it's kind of like they fell to earth and we were sort of looking for, you know, where they scattered in the United States and, you know, they were all over. They were in Florida, they were they were in Chicago, they were in Houston, they were all over. Um, and, and it was, I thought it was a real privilege. It was a real privilege to talk to them because a lot of them are in their late 80s now. So there was a sense of last chance to see, last chance to tell. Um, and for me, who, you know, I grew up in the afterglow of all of that. So uh, it was, you know, it was a fantastic experience. Well, first of all, we wanted to focus the story on a unique element of the landing that wasn't either reproduced later or rehearsed earlier. And, of course, the first time they, they break the lunar module, they go for their powered descent, and they arrest its, it, its velocity to bring it toward the landing, is the unrehearsed period. And Armstrong talks about it as being rampant with unknown, so even he knows what he's up against there. So much untested stuff. And we knew that there was a story to tell there. Now, naively, we thought, if we do 13 minutes, it can't be that hard to tell. <laughs> But actually, if you start telling that story, you get into the story of the whole technology, of the whole programme, and that 13 minutes is really a distillation of every decision that was made in the, in the, in the seven or eight years that came before it. Um, and so that's what it's all about, and we tell it in 12 parts, and we sort of delve both into the people, and not just the astronauts, you know, very much the hidden the hidden figures in all of this uh, because the astronauts were only the tip of the iceberg you know most of the story was below the waterline and we got into that both in terms of the people and the technology well it was is there anything that because it's a story that's um, well, that, that 13 minutes you've told in a depth that hasn't been told before but the story of Apollo 11 is a story that's been told many times is there anything that kind of really surprised you that it wasn't more widely known or there were several at the start, we thought our challenge was to tell a well-known story well. And actually, this weird thing happened as we went along and we sat down. We talked to these people at length. And, we, you know, 
me and Andrew Luck Baker, who's the brilliant producer who actually deserves almost all of the credit for this. You know, the poor bloke has had to sit through me talking to people for hours because I could have talked to any of these people for hours, and I did, and I just wanted to talk to them forever. And he's distilled that all down to these beautiful, you know, episodes. There was a lot of story discovery, uh, and it was everything, I, I guess, from... Uh, the episode four, which has just played out at the moment uh, of 13 Minutes to the Moon, is about the 21 months of recovery from the Apollo 1 fire until the flight of the first human uh, crewed capsule, uh, Apollo 7. And I'd never known that story. We forget Apollo 7, we don't even know who flew it, and yet it was the first Apollo flight. You know, you know who was first person in space, you knew the first dog in spaces, you know, the first satellite up. Why don't you know the first crew who flew on an Apollo vehicle? They're a forgotten crew and they don't deserve to be. Um, and actually, we had people telling us that although you look at Apollo 7 as our great... Uh, we had people telling us that although you look at Apollo 11 as our finest moment and Apollo 13 as that you know, failure is not an option thing, the 21 months of recovery after the fire were the defining moment for NASA. And that, for me, was actually a real revelation. But there's more of that. There's, you know, we ended up dedicating an entire episode, prob- probably my personal favourite episode, to the design and construction of the Apollo guidance computer, both its hardware and its software, which is, I mean, a, a thing of, a thing of art, really. I mean, when you look at it, the way that thing is constructed, it is beautiful. And we denigrate it. We talk about it. Well, you know, it's a million times less powerful than your iPhone, and and uh, you know, and and it was only slightly more sophisticated than a, than a digital watch. Those things may be true, but 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 as one of our contributors told us, you know, you go try plug your laptop into the Apollo guidance system and see if it gets you to the moon. It absolutely won't for any number of reasons. Uh, and so you know, we love making that episode because that is really, it is the birth. It doesn't give birth to the digital age, but but it is it is you know around at the dawn of the digital era and and NASA's first contract contract one is a contract for the development of the Apollo guidance computer, and it doesn't mention the word software because the word software doesn't really exist in common language at that time. This is you know yeah. this is this is this is Apollo, yeah. and yet by the end software is everything. Yeah. So I loved that story. So over and over again, we came across these things that you think you know it, and then you're discovering and discovering. And, and so for, it, was, it was a lovely voyage of exploration for us. So because you're a, a medical person, did they have any ill effects from going to the moon? Well, they, they seemed to have pretty normal life expectancies, didn't they? And uh, so, so, well, it's a very... It's a very small sample size, isn't yeah. it? You know, 12, you know, uh, six crews, 18 people, of whom only 12 walked on the moon. Um, uh, uh, but by and large, they lived reasonably healthy lives. Um, the risks, I think, from Apollo, from a medical perspective, that was interesting for me as a doctor, because, you know, you're used as a doctor to sort of exploring the limits of physiology and how we protect physiology. But you're in an engineering environment there. And actually, when I worked, because I worked at Johnson Space Center with uh, Human Adaptation and Countermeasures Office, uh, you know, looking at how to protect humans uh, in, the, in the environment of space. And the thing you rapidly realized that you weren't, you weren't in Kansas anymore. You, yeah. you, you were out of your hospital. No one cared what you thought as a doctor, really, because the energies involved swamped everything that you could do and either the engineering worked and everybody lived or the engineering failed and everybody died and that is the story of human spaceflight um, and so actually the physiological threats for those missions were not insignificant but they were dwarfed by the engineering risks mm-hmm. radiation was a risk once you got beyond the substantial protection of the magnetosphere uh, exposure to a solar particle event or to a solar flare would have been catastrophic, but but they, you know, by luck rather than by design, they managed to dodge one of the most energetic solar events in 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 history. Um, uh, had they not, had they flown through one of those, you, it would have been a different story. So there was a lot of luck protecting them. Uh, one of the things that 
is being looked at a lot now and seems to have been looked at for a long time as a kind of psychological effect of, of, of space flight. The Apollo 7 crew, and this is a story we tell in, in I think, the fourth episode of, of, of 13 Minutes to the Moon, the Apollo 7 crew very famously fell out with mission control. And, you know, these are tight, pressured environments. I mean, imagine what this is. And I remember I, when I lived in Houston, I shared a flat with a flight surgeon who was talking about preparing a crew to go to Baikonur and they were a bit tetchy before they went away. And he said, guys, you know, you've got to cut them some slack. These guys are about to go and live inside a machine for the next six months, and they depend every moment of their lives on that machine. And somewhere in their head, that has got to be. So the, the psychological element has got to be there. You've just got to be good at dealing with it. And I think the astronauts were very much that. They weren't ordinary people. They were test pilots. So they had a keen understanding of risk. They had a keen acceptance of risk. And one of the most... I guess striking moments of the entire podcast series for me was when I talked to Walt Cunningham, who was the Apollo 7 uh, pilot. Um, He was in that crew. And I said, were you not shocked in the aftermath of the Apollo 1 fire? He was in the backup crew for the Apollo 1 crew who perished in that fire. They were his friends. He selected with Roger Chaffee. And I said, Walt, didn't it prey on your mind? He said, seriously, nobody seriously thought that we'd get through all the flights to get to the moon without losing at least one crew. He said, we just didn't expect to lose them on the ground. That was the shock for me. So, you know, as a test pilot, he was expecting to lose other test pilots, if not his own life, during the procedure. So that, there's a very interesting psychological dynamic there. It's not... It's not played out very obviously because they weren't very expressive people, but it was definitely there. Um, So, one final question. Why does this still matter 50 years later? I think it matters because all exploration matters. You know, I I firmly believe that. And, And first of all, if you look at the way that people have explored things in the past, this follows that same pattern. Burden Magellan goes around the globe, 15, I think it's 19 to 22, I think it's that around that, it's 18 to 21 or 19 to 22. He doesn't survive the expedition, five ships, only one returns, 200 and something crew, only I think 18 of them return. Um, and yet, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a moment in exploration history. No one does it again for 50 years. The same thing happens with Antarctica. Antarctica, 1912, Scott goes, Amundsen goes, Scott's party die, Amundsen's guys survive. No one goes back until the 1950s again. Um, And so it's important because we have to continue to explore. Look at Antarctica. If we were talking about Antarctica uh, 100 years ago, we would say, well, it's a useless place. It's cold. You can't launch an attack from there. It's not arable. Why would you go there? Scott's team all did very badly. Let's not waste the money. And yet, by the middle of the same century, you're pulling out ice cores and finding paleo-atmosphere bubbles that literally yield the scientific knowledge that will save the planet if we're clever enough to use it. And so that same thing might be true of any exploration that we do, physical human crew or automatic crew or partnership of the two and you've got to keep exploring if you haven't heard 30 minutes to the moon then do check it out after you've listened to this episode of the physics world stories podcast of course it's not just podcasts that are being made about apollo 11 at the moment and a major new series on pbs in america and bbc4 here in the uk is chasing the moon by robert stone the accompanying book written by robert stone and alan andres explores some of the fascinating stories that Robert and Alan found when researching the series. My name is Alan Andres. I'm the co-author of Chasing the Moon. What we discovered early on was there are a lot of stories that no one knows or have been slighted because we've had a very conventional narrative. There's an accepted narrative that we've heard for decades the participation of Werner von Braun on the American space program sort of filtered away from the story by the 1980s when the rather disturbing details that came out from the American cut files about po- uh, Operation Paperclip and how the Nazi scientists were cleared or essentially they, they were covered up. And, and then when that came out after von Braun's death and the scandal with a German scientist who came to the United States named Arthur Rudolph, and he was deported. He had to leave the United States because he, of his complicity in uh, war crimes. That all was in the early 80s, and since that period, Von Braun has receded from the story. 
and we have sort of brought him back, giving him his proper uh, attention. Well, well, as you've been looking at it, because I I can't get a clear picture of who Werner von Braun was. Was he a Nazi rocket scientist who used the opportunity to get out of um, the trouble that the Nazis were in by the end of the war and and get himself free by doing the rocket science? Or was he a rocket scientist who wanted to get humanity into space, who just happened to be born under a terrible regime and he got caught up in it because he had no option? You can debate this to the end of, end of time. I mean, trying to get inside Werner von Braun's head is one of the most interesting intellectual exercises of the story. Um, it appears from all the indication that he was, it's not, it's not unfair to call him an opportunist. Uh, <laughs> um, essentially, his dream was to go into space. He was, yet again, another teenager who was infected by the idea of space travel at just that very impressionable age. Reading, he was a he read Hermann Oberth's book uh, that was published in 1923, and that essentially changed the course of his life. How uh, serious a Nazi he was, it's it's debatable. There's nothing to support the fact that he believed in the Nazi um, uh, ideology, but he did join the party. He did join the SS because that was essentially. Uh, something that was opportunist there was an opportunity that he had to do i mean he he did repeatedly point out that he was arrested by the ss and by himmler because they he was they they thought he wasn't with the program quote unquote essentially getting the bombs to fall on on uh, great britain and 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 uh, belgium as soon as possible um and they and was a um, an ss spy heard him talking about space travel and they thought oh this guy is like he's not really that he's not the third reich is not his main concern he wants to go to the stars so there was that side of it now on the other hand it's very fast it's fascinating the fact that when he came to the united states and he realized what kennedy's agenda was and and following up during the johnson administration he became an advocate for integration in the south because of course huntsville alabama the, I mean, the uh, Marshall Space Flight Center was in Huntsville, Alabama, and he was he took on the segregationist Governor George Wallace during the 1960s. So, I mean, he's a, it's a very interesting um, legacy. Yeah, no, it really is. Perhaps we should give Werner von Braun the chance to speak for himself. We are confronted today with a challenge which has all the urgency and importance of our space exploration program. This is the social problem dealing with men's relationship with men. Equal employment opportunity in the federal government is the cornerstone of our federal merit system. It can be traced back almost 80 years to the Civil Service Act itself. However, it was not until 1961 after the issuance of several orders barring discrimination in the federal government, that President John F. Kennedy issued Executive Order 10925, establishing a new program of equal employment opportunity in the federal service. This executive order set a new tone to the government's policy of non-discrimination by calling for affirmative action to be taken by all federal agencies and departments to ensure equal opportunities for all qualified persons seeking employment with the federal government. In the language of the executive order itself, it declared it to be the plain and positive obligation of the United States government to promote and ensure equal opportunity for all qualified persons without regard to race, creed, color, or national origin. Your assistance your affirmative attitudes, and your dedication to a principle that is based upon what is right, what is just, and what is fair will be needed. If we are to extend man's boundary to the outer reaches of the universe, it is imperative that we also resolve man's relationship with man on this earth. You've mentioned that the writing of this book has 
pulled out some stories that you didn't know and probably other people didn't know. Could you maybe share one of them with us? Well, one of the stories that I find fascinating that I doubt will get picked up in the observations of the Apollo 50th uh, anniversary is what James Webb, when he he was the administrator of NASA that was brought, who was brought in by Kennedy, what he was doing with the uh, NASA budget in the background. The Kennedy administration, essentially Kennedy wanted the moon project and the, the Apollo project to be the main focus of NASA, understandably. And Webb understood that also. However, Webb was doing other things. He was pushing for planetary exploration because he had a scientific community that was a little bit angry that they were putting all this money on putting you know test pilots on the moon they thought that much more uh, scientific payback would come from planetary probes and exploration in that that regard plus there were the, of course the weather satellites and communication satellites which were also going up at that time which were returning information that could be practically used by the american people but anyway so he James Webb came to NASA and he had a background as an education major, as an undergraduate, even though later on he was a lawyer. He worked as the uh, President Truman's budget director. Uh, but when Webb was studying education, he always got interested in science education. His father was a school principal. And during the 1950s, when Webb, a Democrat, was out of Washington during the Eisenhower years, he was in Oklahoma and he uh, began an innovative science education program in that state that caught the attention of Eisenhower right after Sputnik because it was a pilot program that Eisenhower could look at and said, this is what we have to do to educate our students about science. So that sort of raised Webb's profile a bit in the, in the United States. But he was an unlikely choice to head NASA in 1961 because he didn't have a scientific background or an engineering background. Um, but he knew how government worked. He knew where the levers were. He knew the, where the bodies were buried in Congress, and he knew how to get things done. And so one of the things he did was when he got that huge federal budget by the mid-60s to foster the, uh, the Apollo program, he also was using it to strengthen education in the United States rather quietly. And when he had, he had a program for secondary schools, they had these, the NASA Public Affairs had a space mobile program, which were these guys would come and visit schools and they would do demonstrations with like liquid oxygen. You'd throw the liquid oxygen, you put the, the plant in it and then you'd smash it and the kids would all go, whoa. And then they would give out and they'd have models of spacecraft and they'd take, give out pictures of the astronauts and pictures of the spacecraft. And the kids were all sort of like starry eyed and, they, and the space mobiles would go from school to school. And that was not only in the United States, but that was also around the world because it was part of the USIA, the U.S. Information Agency. Um, so it was doing it in the third world as well, as they called it then. And the, but the other, and the other thing Webb did is he partnered with state universities all around the United States as contractors to do scientific research for the Apollo program, meaning calculations or astrophysical education, and actually had new space science centers set up in universities. And the reason Webb was doing this is because he wanted the state universities to compete with the private universities, which were better funded to get better professors and more promising students, which kept going off to the big schools like MIT. And so this was sort of his, he was, remember, Webb was a guy who came out of the uh, New Deal, and he believed that government can do these things when they have the money to uh, strengthen the actual country's infrastructure, both commercially, technologically, and educationally. It was a rather kind of radical idea he was doing in the background. Is there any evidence of that having an impact on people? I mean, I felt it. I learned early computer programming as a result of the money that the National Science Foundation was putting in and NASA was putting in to fund the computer network and the computer departments at universities. I was at a school that was next to the University of New Hampshire, and we had a cable set up between, you know, we had a keyboard that we actually, in our school, that went to the University of New Hampshire's big IBM 360 mainframe. 
and we could actually learn programming doing that. And that, to some extent, was funded right out of that, that whole program. Bill Gates had the same situation when he was going to school in Washington. And in fact, there, there's an interesting story that both Bill Gates and Paul Allen as children went and visited the NASA pavilion at the Seattle World's Fair in 1962, you know, saw the models, got the, got, got the flyers and everything else. And in some extent, that powered that whole generation's belief in technology for both good and bad, as we might. <laughs> and that's, of course, the same James Webb as the James Webb Space Telescope, which I'm sure will continue to inspire generations of people into space science and physics and, of course, engineering. But I was hungry to find more of these hidden stories from the Apollo missions, and I travelled to Cheltenham Science Festival here in the UK, which takes place in June each year. And as can happen at Cheltenham Science Festival, as I was walking through the festival, I bumped into broadcaster Dallas Campbell. Dallas, how are you? Very well. We're in Cheltenham, what are you doing? Uh, well, presently kind of wandering around and having one of those moments in between these interstitials and in between events, listening to Holst. Here we are standing by the fountain and they've done it, they've turned it into a beautiful orrery and they're playing Holst's Planets and it's rather lovely. The sun is shining, people are wandering around, all is good with the world. I remember this time two years ago, Theresa May coming down here on her ill-fated... Um, promotion for that general election. Cheltenham is full of history for me, actually. This is my 12th year in a row, yeah. so I can kind of measure the world events by what was going on in Cheltenham. And it's a, a big event for you today, yeah. celebrating Apollo 11. Apollo 11, 50th this year. We've got some uh, planetary scientists. We've got Kevin Fong. We've got Rick Armstrong. Where do you even start? So the interesting thing about Apollo, 400,000 people worked on Apollo. We tend to think of the, the three astronauts for Apollo 11. But there was this great mountain underneath them of men and women, scientists, engineers, managers, secretaries, chefs, whatever it was, all working to make this thing happen. One of my stories that I, um, I always loved, there was a chap called Jack Kinsler. When they were deciding what to, when they got to the moon, are, they, are we going to have a flag? What flag would it be? Are we going to have a plaque? What are we going to do when we're there? And it was decided they would have an American flag, but quite last minute, actually. Um, and they had an American flag, not to sort of say this belongs to America, but rather a reflection that it was primarily American technology. The flag itself cost $5.50. There's one story that a couple of secretaries were sent out on their lunch break, and another one said it came from an army catalogue. But it's just a common or garden, cheap old flag. Really? And I like that, because if you think about the cost of Apollo, you know, whatever it is on, in modern money, $100 billion dollars, that is the most iconic thing yeah. that we look at that flag and it's just you know five bucks from Sears there's quite a lot of stuff that they left on the moon they kind of yeah. dropped a few bits well they, they left a lot of stuff for weight so obviously they were bringing rocks back so they had to be very careful about weight so a lot, most of a lot of bits of the spacesuit. so all the PLSS backpacks are all up there the visor assembly bits that went on top of the helmets are still up there a lot, most of the boots all kinds of bags of astronaut poo of course um if you're a fan of apollo 15 the hammer and the feather that that um oh god what's his name apollo 15 commander come on uh warden warden uh, Irwin and um dave scott dave scott dropped so there's a falcon feather a geology hammer lots and lots of stuff there's, there's a great list you can have a look at hammocks beds it's a mess up there yeah so I, I, andy weir's novel artemis yes they set up a museum on the moon yeah where all this stuff's in there yeah do you think we'll see that one day yeah well I, it's not one day I and mean, already there are documents nasa published documents uh, not legal documents but documents uh just saying to, to spacefaring nations please respect these sites uh, these are historically important sites but the landing sites particularly 11 things like the footprints things like the flag so if you're sort of flying over that be careful of you know it's worth having a look at those documents as, as historical cultural documents they're interesting these are artifacts that are very important to us because they mean something to us apollo 11 will always be the first it's, it was uh, an important time the only first time we became truly a multi-planetary species I do, you know, thinking about Apollo 15 they did the moon buggy well, yes first they? moon buggy yeah do you think that dave scott and Jim Irwin. Charlie Young. Charlie Duke. Charlie Duke. That's 16. 16. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so do you, whoever... Like, that's kind of my point. Yeah. Do you think if they, somebody was driving around an electric moon buggy on the moon today, then they'd be as famous as Neil Armstrong's dad? 
So there was that sort of malaise after Apollo 11. And Apollo 12, um, the viewing figures were much lower. Apollo 13 went up again because something went wrong. Do you think if they sort of then stopped and now started again? Very probably, yeah. I mean, I think the passing of time, I think, well, you know, Donald Trump's already said boots on the moon by 2024. And I think when that happens, if that happens, I mean, there's lots of eye rolling from various agencies saying, you know, that's too short a time span. But when it does happen again, as it surely will at some point, it's going to be massive. Yeah. And partly because the next person on the moon will be a woman, and, and yeah. that in itself will be uh, a, a big thing, I think, and rightly so. Yeah. On the panel at Dallas's event that evening was Apollo expert Nick Howes, and I caught up with him in the busy green room shortly after the event. I'm the director of Aerolite Meteorites in Europe. Um, I also work for a large defence company in space research and development um, section working on satellite projects. And you know a lot about Apollo. Um, It's been a kind of life's mission for me to... It's interesting, Jerry Bostick, who's one of the Apollo flight controllers, who's a good friend, basically said it's people like my generation who are keeping their memory alive. And, you know, it's D-Day today, and we've only got several hundred of the veterans left from the Normandy landings. In a few years' time, we're going to be in the same position with Apollo. There are 400,000 people working on it. That was 50 years ago now, from that, you know, from the, the moon landings. But you're looking at almost 60 years since the start of the Apollo program. So some of the people involved, the flight controllers, are all in their late 80s, 90s. We've only got a few decades left, and then, again, that memory's gone from history. So I kind of, I've always seen it as a bit of a mission in life to to kind of keep what I still consider to be, the, and please anyone feel free to argue with me, the greatest technical achievement in human history. There's been nothing ever to surpass it. So, so what? Yeah, did, you, did you watch the moon landings happen? I didn't know. I was born I mean, literally the day that um, Pete Conrad and Al Bean were on the moon with Apollo 12. Um, so I don't know, my mother always says that that's probably why I'm so fascinated by it. Um, I was very fortunate when Louise Alexander was talking about the moon rocks to have have been able to see those in person as well. Louise kindly invited me over. Um, so I more kind of grew up as a as a child of Viking and a Voyager. My parents let me stay up late to watch the Voyager flybys at Jupiter and Saturn and and so on. And I think it was that and probably watching Star Wars at the age of seven that got me really fired up by space. And then all through my like undergraduate time doing astrophysics and then moving on, it was always kind of Apollo and everybody would talk about it as, as this great achievement but I think it's only really since the start of the commercial boom in the last few years that people have really begun to remember just what a great achievement it was the, the wider populace anyway has always obviously been a group of people who've kind of kept the flame alive for years but. You, you were talking about Apollo 12 I mean the, the viewing figures for that were dramatically lower than oh, they were because most of America were only interested in the kind of geopolitical side of it and the achievement and once that achievement had been yeah, been made like well okay why why should we be interested anymore and I think that would be the difference with the modern generation with social media with all of the different methods of communication we've got with the hundreds of TV channels I think there'll be more engagement with the, the general populace you've always got to kind of factor in the people who say well why are we doing this it's such a huge amount of money to spend on, on space why aren't we solving the problems on earth my counter to that is you only have to look at what the US Department of Defense spend, which is in the 600 to 700 billion dollars a year in killing people, and the cost of, say, the F 35 fighter from Lockheed, and you know, that's in the hundreds of billions as well. And so many things that we do that are for the detriment of mankind, whereas the Apollo program was for the good of mankind, and the 6,000 or whatever spin offs that came from Apollo, you know, we wouldn't have CT scanners. If it wasn't for the Apollo program, we wouldn't have the memory foam on our beds or in our shoes if it wasn't for Apollo. There's so many things that we have to be, we wouldn't have the phones in our pockets if it wasn't for Apollo. The advancements in computing that were made during the whole Apollo program with NASA purchasing 60, 70% of all the microprocessors on the planet, which, which was really advancing. Intel came about because of Apollo. You know, two Fairchild engineers who'd worked on the Apollo guidance computer left decided this is a, an interesting area, we'll form Intel. So we've, we've really got to take that into, into account when we look at you know, the cost element, for example. It's really hard to imagine how much money went into the Apollo missions. But it, it's, it sounds like a lot. It was in the 20-something billion at the time. So if you adjust that now, it's $110, $120 billion, or about £80 billion. Pounds. And you think, well, OK, that was the entire Apollo space program. That was developing computing 
on a scale that we've never seen before. Taking something the size of a basketball court and taking it down to the size of a table. Um, the material science, the tracking, building the deep space network, building the, the largest vehicle that's ever been built in terms of the, the launcher crawler transporter, and building the largest single story building pretty much that's ever been built in the VAB, in building the launch infrastructure at Houston and the Cape, in doing not just Apollo 11, but you've got obviously from Apollo 1, with the testing through to Apollo 4, 5, 6, un, you know, unmanned missions, Apollo 7, 8, 9, you know, all the way through to 17, and then you've got ASTP and the Skylab program. And you think all that is less than the cost of what the UK is about to spend on high speed 2, which is an wow. unbelievably depressing fact. You think about the cost of HS2, which is a train that's going to get us from London to Birmingham 20 minutes faster, and then possibly extend up to you know the north and, and Leeds and what have you. That's more than or equivalent to the cost of the entire Apollo space program. And where's the inspiration from that? How many kids are going to go, oh wow, I want to become a train engineer when High Speed 2 starts running? But how many kids, you know, the increase in PhDs and engineering and scientific uptake, that all of the astronauts of the early shuttle era said, what got you into space? It was Apollo. What are NASA still talking about to this day? It's Apollo. It's not, you know, the first space shuttle or the ISS, or it's, it's Apollo. It was their greatest achievement. Yeah. STS-1, you know, the first space shuttle had so much promise, but then kind of petered into almost a, a delivery vehicle to low Earth orbit. And yes, it gave us the International Space Station capability for collaboration. It gave us the ability to service the Hubble. But then it would have cost less to build a new Hubble and launch it than it would to service it. So there's, there's all sorts of things of like, where have we been in the last 50 years? Since 1972, the distance from where we are here in Cheltenham to Dundee, away from our planet, which you can drive in six hours. That's how far away we've been. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it feels like it's, uh, it's a thing that's said often, it's a, it's a kind of a forgotten technology. If we tried to go back today, we couldn't do it. Is that true? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting quote that I like to give is, in 1969 we had the ability to do it but not fake it, now we've got the ability to fake it but not do it. Um, you only have to look at First Man, you know, the technical achievement of that in terms of simulating what was there on Apollo, and then you look at the original real footage and you realise, no, this, this actually did happen. And all of the people, the kind of conspiracy theorists who say it didn't, if they believe that YouTube is a research material and a research channel and good luck to them but you only have to look into and dive into the depth of engineering study and work and research that went into the entire Apollo program from building the Saturn V from building the guidance computer from building the space designing the spacesuits all these things that we have lost in some respects we've lost the capability to, to launch a mission to the moon again we're just about getting back there again and it's not because we haven't got the technical capability that hasn't been the will there that hasn't been the money there um, will we go back? Do you think, do you I think, think you're going to see that? I think I'll see humans on the moon within the next five to ten years, definitely. Uh, I think primarily because of the risk aversion of people like Elon Musk. Yes, he's, yeah, I say risk aversion. He's obviously doing things very methodically, very carefully, but he's prepared to take risks. Compton 9 was a risk. And I don't think anyone who's interested in space could have not got goosebumps on the back of the neck of watching a Falcon 9 go up and then come back down from orbit and land vertically within a few inches of its, of its landing spot. And then you look at the Falcon Heavy, everyone said, oh, it's not going to work, it's going to blow up. And even Elon Musk was like, well, it may not work, but if it doesn't, we're going to carry on. He'd blown up Pad 39A completely destroying you know, a historic launch pad, but they just keep going on. And that's the mindset that we need now. And you take that with the Lockheed Orion, which is a, a wonderful you know, capsule. It's not going to go to Mars. That's not the, the way we're getting to Mars. Nobody's going to fly three years in something that's twice the size of an Apollo command module. But going back to the moon, we've got the capability, I think, within the next four years to do a rerun of Apollo 8. I think with Falcon Heavy, with the European ATV module that's going to become a service module, you add the Orion to that, yes, we could definitely do an Apollo 8 rerun. Putting people on the moon surface, we've got to build a lander again should we not just rebuild the lander that we already had? It was a beautiful, iconic design. You know, between all of the engineering companies that were involved in, in Apollo, between Boeing and Northrop Grumman and Lockheed, all of these greats, they're still with us. So there's no reason why they couldn't do it again in a more elegant manner. Jeff Bezos has unveiled his lunar lander. So I think it will be done again. Whether or not it will be as exciting, I don't know. I think it will be for younger people. I think for the people who've lived through it and been there, already it's going to be yeah we've done it again until we set foot on mars 
I don't think my generation or the younger generation are going to have their Apollo moment at all. I mean, robotic spacecraft are great. Yeah, the Rosetta mission was great. Some of the issues with it failed with Philae. Um, New Horizons is amazing. You know, but it's none of it has got the same kind of sense of wow and awe and awesome that a human spaceflight has. And people love love the risk. It's like watching a movie where you know the lead actor's in danger. You, you get excited by that and you love it. To see that for real, to see people really putting their lives on the line. And there's astronauts quite willing to do it. So if the governments and the political forces say, we can't do it because there's too much risk, you only have to look at the Hubble Space Telescope when they originally said, oh, we're not going to service it again, we're not going to fix it. All the astronauts who were involved in that said, no way, we're going to do it. We're prepared to put our lives on the line and not have a recovery capability with the ISS to give us the amazing science that's coming from the Hubble. So you get a group of people like that, and I'm hoping against hope that the next person to set foot on the surface of the moon is a woman. Because that was the one, I think, tragedy. You look at the Mercury 13 and, you know, women actually make better astronaut candidates than men. I guess they're consumables or less. There's all sorts of reasons. And I really, really genuinely hope that, I mean, I've got two young daughters. I hope that they'll grow up being inspired by a woman setting foot on the moon with a man, you know, whatever. And, and hopefully do more science this time. Not doing it for political reasons, but for scientific reasons. I did promise you that we'd hear from people who studied the rocks that were brought back from the moon. And Louise Alexander was on the stage with Dallas and Nick at Cheltenham Science Festival. So I work at the Royal Astronomical Society, but prior to that I spent about six years looking at Apollo samples as a PhD student and then as a scientist after that. Do you know how much material came back from the moon? Uh, with the Apollo missions, three, uh, 382 kilograms in total. So a lot of material. You get a lot of material just because humans have gone, because you have to have that extra payload. So, so yeah, it's incredible. While some of that material has been analysed, there are still samples that are available for analysis um, today. And, in fact, there are, there are nine teams who are about to analyse some samples that have... Um, that are pristine that haven't been opened since the Apollo mission. So uh, that's all sort of being done at the, the Johnson Space Centre and at NASA. Um, and so, yeah, the samples that, that, that I looked at were from the curatorial team there. And we had to put together a, a science case and, um, and, and they basically decide whether or not you can have some but very very small amounts of material yeah. yeah and so what was your science case that you put forward? well what we were looking for so it was um so i was looking at apollo 12 samples and what we really wanted to do was to see if there was material that had been brought in from from elsewhere um, across the lunar surface because we know that it is transported by impact um, and what we're really hoping for was some of the younger basalts sort of that maybe to the to the northwest of, of the Apollo 12 site in, in Oceanus Procellarum. Um, it, it, it changed um, because I don't think we, well certainly the samples that we dated doesn't appear that we did get anything particularly young but we did get some sort of some anomalous samples um, but one of the most important things I think that, that I did as part of that PhD was to to look in detail at the, at the chemistry um, and at the minerals of those samples and look at ways that you can categorise accurately very, very small amounts of material. Because a lot of the Apollo samples, they're, they're sort of, you, you have different categories based upon the minerals that are in them. So you'll have an ilmenite basalt. It's got a lot of ilmenite in it. It's an ilmenite basalt. Um, it's not as simple as that, but, but, but basically that's what you're doing. But if you're looking at very, very tiny bits of material, you might have something that you think is from an ilmenite basalt, but actually it's not representative. The grain next to it might not have any ilmenite in it. So, so we were taking it further to look at the trace elements because that can tell you how many different flows there are on, the, on different parts of the moon so you're building up a stratigraphy essentially but it's also very useful 
for because a lot of missions in the future aren't going to be um, human missions. You will, you will have sample re- robotic sample return and only return very, very tiny amounts of material. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so do you think there's a lot more we can learn from the moon? There is a lot more that we can learn from the moon, yes. There's a lot more that we can learn, for example, about the solar system's journey around the galaxy. So what we need are samples from different layers on the moon so that we can tie it down to these, these very definite different time periods. And then we can analyse the noble gases um, in, in those layers and that will give us an idea of the amount of radiation, the amount of galactic cosmic rays that were interacting with the surface at that time. And I think that that could be really important in our future because after all the solar system is still travelling around the galaxy. What's what's gonna to happen to us if did life develop at a time when there was a, there was a lot of this cosmic radiation or not. So there's also a lot of questions about resources. I think people were talking tonight a bit about potentially having moon bases. So again the materials are important because you're then starting to look at, at lunar resources. What could, what can you use? What could you what could you use while you're actually on the surface? I know people have been doing sort of experiments with lunar regolith type materials, so um, terrestrial analogs as to sort of to 3D printing blocks that they can use for buildings. So there's all sorts of uh, things like that. I, and again, as somebody else t- touched on tonight, we've got the, the water ice in the craters but there may be other ways uh, there, there are other volatiles in other samples other gaseous elements so for example the glass beads that were formed in the fire fountain eruptions we can find uh, more of those those could those could be a really interesting resource for the future i, th- I think it's still alter yeah i i think it, it i think we've answered a lot of questions since we've started to get the rocks back from the moon but uh, it, it always leads to more questions. Everything always does. So if I said, here you go, here's a spade, get on that rocket and uh, get back to the moon and go digging, would you do it tomorrow? I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of going to space. That would absolutely not be me. But, uh, yeah, I would, I, I'd happily send somebody else to do it and wait for the rocks to come back. But, no, I'm not going. I'm <laughs> not for me. <laughs> Now, Alan Bean was on Apollo 12. As he stepped out onto the moon's surface, he turned towards the sun. And as you'll probably know, they all had these Hasselblad cameras strapped to the front of their spacesuits. And as Alan turned, unbeknownst to himself, the sun fried the film in the camera. So when he returned from the moon's surface, he discovered that he hadn't captured anything of his time on the moon. Later, he retired from being an astronaut and became an artist painting nothing but the experiences that he and the other Apollo astronauts had had getting to and walking around the moon. Several years ago, when I was first starting out in this whole podcast-making business, I had my first podcast, which was called Dessert Lionel Discs, and I had the great opportunity to interview Alan for that podcast. And all those years ago, Louise Alexander came into the room. Back then, Louise was in the early years of her PhD. Hi Don't there, how are you? Hello, yeah, I'm fine, thank you. It's a, it's a great honour to meet you. Thank um, you. Nice I'm working to be on, here. Your, on, your, on the samples that you brought back from, oh, you are. from the moon, yeah. So I'm working on Apollo 12 samples for my PhD at the moment. Good. So, so this makes it a really, really special honour for it me. It does, it's and, great. Um, yeah, so I was just uh, I was I was just wondering whether you were aware that there are so many of us who are still working on the Apollo 12 samples that you brought back and uh... not specifically but I do know that scientists around the world are doing this and doing it on the others and I assume that this will be going on forever as new scientific techniques come available that weren't that you haven't available to you yeah. 20 years from now some other young lady will be doing the same work only with better equipment or new ideas or whatever so I think because we're still studying earth rocks so (laughs) we'll be doing the same thing for the moon and uh, and no I'm glad you are though I don't think I've ever met one so this is a treat I've got some images of the samples that I'm working on so send it over here let's look at it let's get some of this mail there You've already, you've already got the pictures of this. Yeah, at 15 feet. 
feet. I'm just taking it close up. Okay, go get come up just a little bit. Black rock here. Okay, wait. Let me get close. Wait, wait. Uh oh. All right. Right. I got it. I got it. I got yeah, it. I didn't get a picture of it. But the feeling that when that crater was made, it just threw out a big blob of dirt. This is where it landed. So these are the some of the samples that I'm currently looking at. Oh, they're, you got some nice small. ones. I um, use these some of these color plans a lot, like particularly like green and purple, and well, there's red. Those are nice painting see. colors. See, these particularly I find very interesting colors. And yes. what I'm doing these days, I've gone kind of as extreme as I I like to go. And lately, I've been trying to return to a more gray, but subtle, these colors. Yes. So it's, right. uh, okay. these what artists do. They do what they like, what feels like it they should do. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the job. As I tell my astronaut friends, I'm not a scientist anymore. I'm an artist. I've heard you say before that uh, one of the the best things about being an artist is that it gives you a freedom that you don't get as a pilot of a spacecraft. And I wondered, if you could have that kind of freedom as a pilot of a spacecraft, what would you do with it? Where would you go? My goodness. <laughs> I guess you'd have to say uh, where you've not been before. Yeah. So you'd, that has appeal. It'd be good to go into space and go back to the moon, but if, if right. the competition was between going to the moon and Mars, mm. I would immediately say, let's go to Mars. We okay. hadn't been there. Yeah. And if we had been, and then they said, well, we can go there, there, let's try a moon of Jupiter. I'd say, well, let's go that place yeah. and let's yeah. see what's there. So uh, Definitely. that would be the way I think. I know that's how I think, and I think most astronauts feel that way. Absolutely. So someday there will be a, a uh, discussion about it. I think we'll end up going back to the moon because it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. yeah. And that money is always a problem yeah, sure. all the time. So it's never going to be a time in the future where people can say, well, I'll spend uh, uh, this amount, $200 billion to go to the, to the moon, or am I going to spend uh, $800 billion to go to Mars? Mm -hmm. So it's always going to be like that. Yeah. But I would say save money and go to Mars. Those rocks have been waiting four and a half billion years for us to come grab them. Think so, huh? Let's go grab them. Here we go. Stand by, Intrepid. We'll be right with you. Okay. Stand by. You guys ought to be spring loaded. Intrepid, your go for EVA. I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of some of the other stories around the Apollo missions. We're going to return to Apollo next month for the Physics World Stories podcast, but this time we'll be looking at the missions that are taking us back to the moon's surface. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, boat auto, descent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're looking good here. Physics World.